0: Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very exciting show for you today. We have two guests, Peter Strzok and Olivia Nuzzi. But I also want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening and we'd love to hear your comments. So shoot us an email at backroomandy at gmail.com. And if you like the pod, follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's get to our two big things, which is kind of sort of three big things, but let's start with Trump. He's having another shitty week. Lo and behold, another lawyer quit. Isn't that shocking that a lawyer would quit the Trump legal team?
1: He loses more lawyers than elections.
0: I mean, it's not like he's a horrible client who undermines his legal team and never pays them. Super easy gig. Yeah, I mean... It's, really a springboard yeah, to the next I mean, it's thing. Like the best gig in the world, be a Trump lawyer. The National Archives is now going to hand over 16 documents to Jack Smith, mm-hmm. which could prove that Trump knew that uh, there was a specific procedure for declassifying documents other than just thinking about declassifying them. And that is really dangerous to Trump because that speaks to the issue of intent, which is at the core of that case.
1: Uh, His intent he expressed on the CNN town hall, which was he wanted them, so he took them.
0: Yeah, I had a right to. And then an interesting new poll came out, the WPA intelligence poll came out showing Biden with a 47 to 40 lead over Trump. But more significantly, among independents, Biden has a 14 point lead and Trump has a 21 percent disapproval. Hmm. So I know it's a long way off between now and the election and a year is a lifetime in politics. But it's just interesting when you look at some of the polling like that as an indicator of where we might really be. Everybody's talking about, Biden Biden's old, he's this, he's that, blah, 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 Trump could be. Biden kicked his ass in 2020, and I don't see that changing at all.
1: Well, he'll never win the popular vote, Trump, that is, mm-hmm. and he hasn't done it twice, and he wouldn't do it a third time. But the, unfortunately, the way things are set up, that doesn't seem to matter always.
0: The other thing that we could talk about for a minute or two, and we're actually going to have Peter Strzok on to give us his assessment of the Durham report that was released this week, but the Department of Justice served up kind of a big nothing burger.
1: I don't know if you've had a chance to read the Durham report, but it is actually like a giant op-ed. It doesn't read like anything similar to it ever reads. And, And there's some very funny lines in it where he spoke to the manager of the Ritz-Carlton, where the famous PP tape was supposedly recorded. And he actually says that he, he believed the guy because he was very well-spoken and nice.
0: Yeah, how many years and millions of dollars and it ends up being absolutely nothing. It's just another Benghazi. And Peter's going to get into the reasons why it's a nothing burger, but it's the thing with Trump is it doesn't matter what is ever in any report. That's true. This report could have a headline that says, we have found Donald Trump to be the most corrupt motherfucker ever to walk into Washington. And that night he will hold up that same document and go, totally exonerated me.
1: Well, it's not only well, him, it doesn't matter. He, he'll have Fox News to say the same thing. He'll have Jim and Jordan, they are. Jim Jordan, any number of them are already saying the Durham report is the most damaging report in the history of the United States.
0: Yeah, for how many years now has he claimed that this is going to prove that there was the crime of the century that the FBI and the Democrats and the Deep State and Hillary Clinton and crime of the century? Because
2: I... people be- and people believe it. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's the the scary part.
0: I... Well. The people who we would love to one day see stop believing it will never stop believing it. Those hardcore people that get dressed up from head to toe in Trump gear and stand outside for four hours waiting to get into a Trump rally, they'll never believe any of this shit. But there's a good number of people who didn't believe the crap last time, and there's more of them this time.
1: There's another funny part of the report where Durham basically says that he has no recommendations for changes to the FBI.
0: Yeah, no, that, but that's why it's a nothing burger. <laughs> Let's talk about Giuliani for a second.
1: The gift that keeps giving. D- You're talking about the court filing where a former employee is suing him for sexual abuse and many
0: other things just to yeah, and set the of the, the presidential pardon peddling, well, you know. Yes. $2 million, I'm going to split it with Trump. Like, well, are we in the mob? I, we also don't know if that's
1: not true. It's the um, so We, we do that. know. Look at that, all the
0: people he pardoned. Well, and we don't know whether there was a cash transaction the, involved. If?
1: Bill Barr was on Fox News two days ago and was asked about this revelation. And Bill Barr, at the end of his meandering, says, I don't know. Bill Barr, his former attorney general, doesn't know if Trump and Giuliani were selling pardons for $2 million. He couldn't unequivocally say, that's not possible, like any normal person would do. But
0: with Trump, you can't say that. If you (laughs) saw a headline tomorrow that five people came forward and said, I, I paid Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani $2 million, which they split for my pardon. Would you be like, oh my God, that's unbelievable.
2: Right, you'd be like, no doubt. Yeah.
1: There's so many things in this court filing that are incredible. One of the my favorite parts is they actually have a still photograph from the Borat movie where Giuliani <laughs> has his hand on his pants and they give that as an example of what he did with his employee. The, the other part is that he, she had to give him blowjobs while he talked to important people because, and I quote, he liked feeling like Bill Clinton, unquote.
0: He claims he doesn't oh. know her, yet there are hundreds of f- phone calls that he made to her. Hundreds. hundreds. No, there's
1: recordings they claim in this Oh, yeah, document. they have tapes. They have tapes. tapes. Yeah. And also, he hasn't come out and said, this is unequivocally false. This person is crazy. I've never done any of this. There, there was one little statement from one of his lawyers who said, you know, this isn't true. And that was it. Nothing.
0: What's amazing is that with all the shit we have learned about Giuliani and the tapes, that supposedly exists, et cetera, et cetera. This guy makes a living from cybersecurity. <laughs> Would you even... ever hire... No, no thanks, Rudy. I got it myself.
1: There's another part in this court filing where she describes that he put his email on her computer so that she could see everything that was being emailed to him, and all of it's incredibly privileged, and it also loaded all of his old email. So he had, she has all this email from Donald Trump Jr., from Donald Trump.
0: Rudy's going down. And this will be the least of it, in my opinion. All right, let's get to winners and losers.
2: My winner, the FBI, who revoked the security clearances of three agents who either took part in the riot on January 6th or later expressed views that it placed into question their allegiance to the United States. My loser, DeSantis, for losing a billion dollars and 2,000 jobs in his ongoing feud with Disney.
1: My winner actually is a different species. It's swine. And that's for the very unusual grouping of SCOTUS judges in a 5-4 affirmation of California's right to ban inhumane pork from out of state. Uh, I would definitely recommend people read it and see who was on the 5 side, because you will be shocked. On the loser side, I have to go with Elon Musk, because his obscene obsession with defending white supremacy is just beyond the pale.
0: My winner this week is Disney, who, in response to Governor Ron DeSantis's increasing attacks, scrapped plans to build a new employee campus, resulting in a revenue loss of $1 billion and and 2,000 jobs to Florida. My loser is, of course, Ron DeSantis, but I'm going to also go with Elon Musk for just basically saying, hey, I own Twitter so I can be an anti-Semitic schmuck. All right, that gets us to our weekly rant. Donald Trump came to D.C. seven years ago on a promise to drain the swamp. Instead, he backed up the truck and filled it with an unprecedented amount of liars, cheaters, serial sinners, sexual predators, rapists, thieves, election stealers, insurrectionists, and traitors. Since then, many Trump aides and allies have either pleaded guilty or have been convicted of crimes. These include Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, George Papadopoulos, Rick Gates, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Michael Cohen, Alan Weisselberg, Others, like our friend Rudy Giuliani, now accused of sexual assault and pardon selling, and other senior aides like Mark Meadows, are under federal investigation and in serious trouble. And then there's the godfather himself, already indicted on 34 counts, felony counts, found liable of sexual abuse, and facing additional indictments in the J-6, Mar-a-Lago classified documents, and Georgia election-stealing cases. Trump has also spawned a cottage industry of cruel, sadistic, evil little shitbags like Ron DeSantis, who in jerking himself off to the prospect of siphoning off Trump's ghoulish MAGA base is trying to out-Trump him with his culture war fuckery. And yet to Republicans, none of this matters. They focus instead on the imaginary Biden crime family with an obsessious, obsessive fixation on a fucking laptop. Trump and his mob, which includes his corrupt offspring, have colluded with Russia, tried to overthrow the government, committed countless federal crimes, sexually abused and raped women, and or financially benefited by the presidency. But fuck all that, because Hunter Biden had a MacBook. The Trump crime family is real, not imaginary. It's corrupted and forever changed every single American institution and continues to remain an existential threat to democracy. The big question is not whether or not Republicans will ever realize that, because they do, but whether or not they'll ever do anything about it. All right, let's bring out Peter Strzok. He's a former deputy assistant director of the FBI's counterintelligence division. He's also an author, podcaster, Georgetown University professor, but he's also the architect of the crossfire hurricane Russia probe. Peter, welcome into the back room. Welcome back into the back room. Hey, Andy, how are you? Good, good. So, obviously, uh, you're a person I want to talk to today because this week we saw the release of the massive Durham report. You were obviously the uh, architect of Crossfire Hurricane
3: Russia, Russia, Russia investigation. I just love saying that. What do you make of this report? Andy, I think it's absurd. I mean, his high-level takeaway that somehow there was any question whatsoever. That, based on what Russia was doing attacking the 2016 elections, that the FBI shouldn't have investigated it is an absurd assertion. You look at the fact of just how many people Robert Mueller convicted everybody from Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager, who passed information to somebody the U.S. is now labeling a Russian intelligence officer. You can't get a closer connection between a campaign and the government of Russia than the campaign manager passing non public polling information to a Russian intelligence officer. I think at the end of the day, and even Durham, people saying, well, he said it shouldn't have been opened. No, that's not exactly what he said. Later, buried in the report, he sort of acknowledges that, well, you know, yes, the FBI had an obligation to investigate it, but maybe they should have opened it as a preliminary investigation rather than a full and go up to it later. Well, yeah, that's splitting hairs. And it clearly, based on this level of criminality, would have gotten there. And if that's the takeaway after four years, we had Mike Horowitz in 2019 who presented all of this information. He was the the inspector general. Right. Mm -hmm. The inspector general whose job it is is a nonpartisan investigator to do this. And he did it and came up the takeaway that legitimate investigation, no testimonial or documentary evidence that bias played any role, identified some real problems with a FISA on a guy named Carter Page, which were appropriate and wrong and the FBI and DOJ have taken steps to fix. But that was all out there four years ago now. So you get this Durham report, which is just regurgitated information that is now going on four years old. It's more an editorial than hard news. It's like the difference if you read the Mueller report or the Horowitz report, it's like picking up the newspaper and you're reading a sort of laydown of exactly what happened, a factual piece of reporting. And then the Durham report, it's like you turn to the editorial page and it's somebody who is trying to feed and satiate all these Trump narratives about the deep state that one, they don't hold up, but two, when you look at the report and you're like, wait a minute, this this is not a professional objective report of a prosecutor. This is a four-year-long editorial piece. And so I think most people, I think, have seen through it. I strenuously disagree with any sort of assertion that the Bureau improperly investigated these. I think, if anything, the record clearly shows the Bureau didn't move quickly, and maybe it didn't move quickly enough. Mm-hmm. based on the gravity and breadth of what was going on. So, you know, I think outside of the little right-wing bubble of OAN and Fox and Magination, I think most people kind of see through it to be the, you know, the kind of sad, whimpering death of a four-year process. Yeah, I hate to use the term nothing burger
0: because it's been so overused, but it really does seem like that's what this is. It's just a whole lot of nothing. Durham... It says there wasn't political bias. There was no criminality. There were no criminal charges recommended. It certainly doesn't feed the narrative that Trump has been pushing for all these years of crime of the century, although that doesn't stop him from saying that anyway. He's already, you know, what did he say? The Durham report spells out in great detail the Democrat hoax that was perpetrated upon me and the American people. Nah, no no, it doesn't. That's not what it says. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Absolutely not. And if you look at the two cases that Durham brought, well, he brought a third. He got a plea, which was essentially something that the IG delivered to him on a platter, right, Uh, an attorney who had changed an email, and that attorney pled to Durham. The two cases that he developed on his own and took to trial, weeks-long trials in each case, the jury took a little over a day in each case to unanimously reject the cases. Thrown out. So to the extent he tried his hardest to find anything that Trump might be asserting some plot involving Clinton and some overarching conspiracy to, you know, implicate Trump. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, the things that he brought were thrown out. In fact, the first jury saying, one juror to the press saying, I felt like he wasted our time. And that's the result that you got. He got one guilty
0: plea, one lower level FBI guilty plea uh, over a doctored email. That's
3: the net result of it. Right. And that, again, when he, the evidence for that was entirely developed by the IG and the IG's report. So that wasn't even something that he brought up on his own. That was like, you know, the IG said, oh, you know, we found all these things and we found this, which potentially is criminal. And so Durham took it, looked at it and, you know, claimed a, claimed a stat or a win. So again, it bothers me a little bit that in his report, he spends a lot of ink sort of trying to relitigate the co- the cases that he lost. I mean, part of our judicial system, DOJ, you know, as prosecutor, as law enforcement, if you're gonna accuse somebody, accuse them, charge them, take them to trial. And if you make a right. case, great, they go to jail. If You don't make your case and they're quitted, then shut up about it. Right. Don't keep trying to cast aspersions two years later after somebody who's found not guilty, trying to like smear them again. Anyway, that's not what the Department of Justice should be doing at all. So what John, John Durham knows better. And yet he's, he's become Captain Ahab or, you know, whatever, whatever literary, you know, allegory you want to use. He is so set on this idea that he he had this theory that even though it's been thrown out by juries, even though it's been thrown out by the media and the mainstream American public, he's just butting his head into the wall, and it's sad to see. Did Bill Barr basically set him up for failure from the get-go? No, I think this is exactly what Bill Barr wanted. I think Bill Barr wanted, and he said it out loud, it isn't as important whether we win or lose a case as it is to get these facts out. Well, you know what? That's not how the justice system works. The justice system is not a propaganda arm to please whatever it is the president, the incumbent president wants out there. The justice system is investigate potential violations of law and prosecute them. And if you don't prosecute them, shut up because you don't want our justice system is not there to sort of cast dispersions on people. That's not our system of justice. But Bill Barr wanted it to be exactly that. He said as much in recent interviews, and that's exactly what Durham's done Mm -hmm. for this report. Let me rephrase
0: my question because maybe I didn't ask it the right way. Yes, that's 100% correct. I mean, all this criticism you're hearing from the right about the the investigation never should have happened. The whole point of an investigation is to find whether there was or wasn't criminality and so the fact that it didn't find that can't get used as justification to not have the investigation in the first place. But my question was more so about to to Trump and the Trumpers and to maybe Durham himself, who had a different agenda, was that set up for failure from the get-go because of Barr basically intending to follow the letter of the law, at least in this case, although he seems compromised in other situations. Do you think that these guys were kind of foolish? Like Durham? And Trump, who believed that there was going to be this massive proof one day of a crime of the century, were they just completely caught off guard by
3: what Barr really wanted? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know. I, in other words, I know from inside the team, there's absolutely no illegal activity, right? There was no deep state conspiracy to set anybody up. I mean, for God's sakes, we were publicly investigating Hillary Clinton until days before the election. We were investigating members of the Trump campaign and nobody knew that until well after. So there, there, there was no setup. Now, whether or not, you know, Bill Barr or John Durham or anybody else really thought there was illegal activity, I don't know what they thought or didn't think, but there wasn't any. But by launching into this, they certainly, I think, created the expectation, the charge led by Trump, that this John Durham was going to uncover the, pl- the crime of the century. And they kept feeding, by the way, they sort of let statements be made or, you know, statements stand uncorrected. They let that implication and expectation grow that, in fact, Durham had gotten this huge, you know, he was going to put everybody from Obama on Ford in jail. And that just grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. And now you've got, you know, and it's funny, you know, you mentioned you've got people on Fox News calling Durham a failure, saying it's a bust, talking about all these horrible things. So was that set up for failure? Based on any objective person looking at saying, no, there's not crime there and not listening or thinking that. I don't know, but it's a good, I have no idea in my mind at the end of the day, there's always a significant question about, you know, have, Bill Barr is a bright, bright man. John Durham by all accounts is a very bright man, but did they drink the Kool-Aid? Did they get the Fox news brain worms Mm -hmm. that they, they truly are true believers? that there is this nefarious nonsense plot? I I don't know. Does
0: it not matter what really was in this report? Will the Trumpers and Trump himself in particular, especially during a presidential campaign, if you want to call it that, I mean, I always like to say a report can have a headline that says Donald Trump is the the most corrupt politician in the history of Washington, and Trump will say, totally exonerated me. So where it really matters, is this gonna move the needle at all beyond the, the nerd world of people like you and me?
3: No, I don't think so. Look, I mean, I think the, the, it is, in fact, a nothing burger, which I think means that the legitimate centrist press and the general American population from the center and certainly the left, look at that and say, oh, this is, this is BS. This is a waste of time. And they don't think another thought about it. But to the MAGA Nation, even though it didn't come up with a single prosecution of some great plot or any evidence of it, they're going to find a way to spin it about, yeah, you know, Durham proved it. And so, no, I don't, think it, I, I don't think it matters. I think this is part of the asymmetric nature of it, right? That people on the right are going to seize on it and talk about it and blow it up and use it again and again and again. But because it's such BS, nobody in the middle or left cares. They're not going to waste their time on it. So you've got this spinning narrative that just tends to increase in gravity and nefariousness over time that any sane person <laughs> says, well, isn't this, is, this is nonsense. We're not going to devote. You know half a column about it because it's obvious it's mm-hmm. nothing there so i don't think it moves the needle i think it was ultimately a an extraordinary waste of taxpayer money i think it was an extraordinary abuse of prosecutorial discretion for a prosecutor to use the threat of prosecution in the criminal justice system to pursue a partisan editorial agenda i hope we learned something from it i don't know that we have or that we will but you know it's over and as i knew from day one. (laughs) Nobody was charged. There was no big conspiracy. God knows he looked for it. And there's nothing there because there isn't anything. Well, it certainly puts you in a much more favorable light from a fact basis. So uh, glad (laughs) about that, as I'm sure you are. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not shockingly enough. I'm not having to zoom from Guantanamo Bay right. from my, you know, cell to. to defend. Yes. Yeah. Yes, There's agreed. no need to call
0: Sidney Powell for legal help and <laughs> anything like that. So, well, thanks for coming on and giving us a quick update. I really appreciate it, especially this week. And we'll hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, that was really great and timely that we were able to chat with Peter and get his perspective on it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, as he said, the Durham report totally exonerates him, except, of course, you know, Fox News viewers are going to see it a little bit differently. But we already know that there's nothing they could say that would make that possible.
0: Yeah, I think it matters in terms of the historical record.
1: I mean, four years, six million dollars, more time than it took to do the Mueller report. I know you said nothing burger and you don't want to say it again, but what is a better term for nothing burger than nothing burger?
0: Plant-based burger? Plant-based burger. <laughs> it's an impossible burger. All right, let's get to our next guest, Olivia Nutzi. Olivia is New York Magazine's Washington correspondent, and she covers the White House, presidential campaigns, and political media, among other topics. She joined New York in 2017 as its first ever Washington correspondent and reported on the Trump administration and the 2020 election. She's an award-winning journalist who contributes regularly to Intelligencer, the magazine's news and politics vertical, in addition to writing features and columns for the magazine. Olivia, welcome into the back room.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So before we get into all the juicy political newsy stuff, I want to peel back the onion a little bit. I'm interested in little Olivia, like when you were a kid, were you... Obsessed with politics and news and all that stuff.
2: I wasn't really interested in politics until I was probably like a tween, you know, Mm. Uh, I was really interested in comedy and late night comedy. Mm. And I really loved pop culture. And I I really didn't start paying attention to the news until it was really an excuse to be able to keep up with with late night. Mm. It used to frustrate me greatly when I didn't get the jokes on like Letterman and so I was really paying attention to the news for a completely not noble reason which was to kind of be in on the joke. (laughs) So
0: you must have Um, had a pretty advanced wit if you were like 14 and getting Letterman's jokes.
2: I'd like to think so yeah I had this um this uh history teacher um what was his name Kevin I can't remember his last name I'm still in touch with him though but he would come in and kind of Recycle Letterman's monologues in class, and I was the only one who like knew what he was up to. <laughs> and we sort of had an understanding that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't rat him out to everyone else. But yeah, I was very, I was just very interested in pop culture and comedy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I used to watch Letterman with my dad, and I would read the papers if they were interesting to me. But we were not a political household, and mm-hmm. my family was very working class, and it was certainly not, you know, the type of place where you would debate. Policy
0: Was it a, a, um, a conservative
2: house? My mother was just pretty liberal, mm-hmm. like reflexively, you know, um, she loved the Obamas and, mm-hmm. you know, thought Michelle Obama was just the greatest thing to ever happen. My father was probably more political in a kind of traditional Italian American working class way, but it never, you know, they were not motivated by, by politics. I remember during Bush's reelection campaign, my I lived in one of the kind of only red little areas in New Jersey in a in an otherwise pretty blue county. And there were Bush signs everywhere, all my neighbor's lawns and my parents never engaged in anything like that and didn't really openly discuss politics mm-hmm. so i sort of when i got very interested in in it i would kind of coax them into you know trying to get their opinions but it was pretty surface level it was like oh i think this person's a crook this person's an asshole i would never vote for this person it was kind of a tabloid informed view of, of current events
0: and like uh, in the case of trump somebody could be a crook and an asshole.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> the man does it
0: all. Yeah. Speaking of your family, I heard you once say something to the effect of no one had jobs where thinking was required.
2: No, 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 no. I I, um, I think you're talking about the Shane Harris podcast. No one had jobs where thinking was the job. Right. Got I mean, it. everyone worked with their hands. Everyone right. was, um, you know. My father worked for the sanitation department. My mother, waitress, and my aunts are all hairdressers. And nobody had a you know nobody was like a professor. I didn't right. know that writing was an option right. as a
0: career, basically. Yeah, my father was a New York City cab driver, so I had a very similar. Yeah, no, a
2: lot of thinking is required, <laughs> right? It's just like the job is not right. Um, right. all about sitting around and you know what do I think about this?
0: Right. And you went to uh, acting
2: school at one point. I did. Yeah, I did. I went to, um, I, my brother, I think it was pretty common in the suburbs where we were in New Jersey. We were pretty close to Manhattan and uh, a lot of kids that I knew did commercials and Mm -hmm. print work and stuff like that. So my brother and I both did that and I took, I, I, Went to acting school in New York. I went to this place called HB Studios. Mm -hmm. And in Philadelphia, I went to a place called the Actors Center.
0: So, what happened? You just woke up one day and was like, I wasn't uh, very good at it.
2: (laughs) Kind of, yeah. I wasn't very good at it. Well, that's important. It was, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I was sort of like kind of this Daria like child. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know, when you're doing commercial auditions for Eglin's Best Eggs or Ovaltine or whatever. You have to be very peppy. And there's this great Eddie Pepitone bit about doing a reading sides for, I think it's a laundry detergent commercial. And he just progressively loses his mind as he continues to read the, honey, how'd you get the shirt so fresh? It's he's like, the world is falling apart. People can't eat. There's unrest in the streets, but you got the shirts really fresh mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end of it. And I kind of felt like that. It was like very, it felt very silly. And it was, you know, it's a weird life to be like rejected all the time as a kid.
0: Was it something your mother yeah. pushed on you or was this driven totally by you?
2: You know, my brother was scouted. And so I would go along with him to stuff. And then I would be there. And, you know, sometimes I would, you know, I'd be asked to read or asked to to take a Polaroid, mm. which was for print, and then I really liked it. I thought it was very interesting, um, and it was sort of an interesting outlet for for my creativity for a period of time and i liked acting school i liked the other kids but it was a lot of like going in the car after school or getting picked up early from school and going and you know taking a polaroid at some loft in soho and Mm -hmm. talking to some weird adults for a few minutes and then getting back in the car and going back uh or like worse than that having to show up on set and be like traumatized by you know someone making a weird comment about how you look when you're an eight-year-old girl
0: right I was married to a, an actor and I know a lot of actors and it's a rough gig for an adult, let alone yeah. a, a, a child. And I mean, I'm you're... grateful I did it. I, you know, I
2: think it was like helpful in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. that I couldn't have possibly foreseen.
0: Yeah. I think if it's your passion and if that's what you want to be, then by all means, you know, but so many parents, I mm-hmm. think, end up pushing, you know, a lot of moms Oh, yeah. And dads I used to see
2: crazy moved. shit. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, just parents berating their children and, you know, when everyone's online waiting to get their role right taken or whatever. It was really horrible. There were stories about, there was this one story about a mother pushing a child down the flight of stairs, not her child, so that her child, who was the understudy, would get to go on. I mean, there was just...
0: Oh my Crazy, God. Crazy,
2: terrifying tales of parents behaving badly.
0: Yeah, wow. And so you're also getting married soon, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And you're engaged to Ryan Lizza?
2: I am. A lot of Zs in the yeah, mix I, Well, with I was going to ask you,
0: was it a requirement of seeking out a future husband that he also it had was, two Zs yeah. in the name? Are you going to try to figure out how to merge the two names? And
2: I think we're just going to do like four Zs, just as... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that but awesome. yeah, it was certainly a requirement. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Cause I'm thinking, you know, sometimes people take the husband's name, but keep their own name. Yeah. So you would be Olivia, Nuzzi, Liza. That's a <laughs> mouthful.
2: <laughs> yeah. I haven't really thought too much about the technicalities on that yet.
0: And do people often mispronounce your name?
2: There's dispute even in my own family about it. Cause there's the, you know, the correct Italian pronunciation is Nuzzi. Mm-hmm. And then there, some people say Nuzzy, mm-hmm. you know, people would call my brother Nuz mm-hmm. growing up, which I was always horrified by. Um, so there's no, you know, I don't care. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> because I get a lot of it and people literally will change my name, like Ostrow. But it's like O S T R O Y, and it'll be like Andy Ostrow (laughs) or Andy Ostrov, and I'm like, where do you get the W? Like it's so it's not even like a mispronunciation. It's literally like changing (laughs) my name. And so, at what point did you decide I'm not going to be the next Meryl Streep? I'm going to be a journalist.
2: (laughs) I, you know, I was I was very I got very interested in politics. The more news that I read, and then the more I mean, politics got very interesting when I was a teenager. just it was an interesting time in america with the rise of obama and i was certainly very engaged on that and i was really radicalized by the proposition 8 Mm -hmm. campaign in la and i was just very spending a lot of my time reading about and watching you know political media and i knew i wanted to write but I, i wasn't really i didn't have any like sophisticated ideas about how those two interests might converge Mm -hmm. or anything like that and i started just writing for fun i had like a little blog Mm -hmm. that i would post on um and then i started volunteering in local politics um, for a for a legislative race in new jersey and i loved it it was like the most fun that i had ever had all these amazing characters and it was just it was just fascinating. And I guess someone, a local blogger, saw my blog and asked me if I would be like the dissenting liberal voice mm-hmm. on his rather conservative publication.
0: And you were 16 and at the wrote, time, right?
2: I was. Well, you were in high school. I guess, I, yeah, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I wrote something about it. She was a Republican legislative, I think she was a state senator or state legislator. And she was sort of not sure. She, she didn't answer a question directly about gay marriage or she seemed to be delaying giving her answer. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece sort of like condemning her for that. And then the publisher of, a, of an all weekly in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which was near my hometown, asked me if I would be a columnist for them. So uh, it was called the Tri-City News. And I started writing for them on a, a monthly basis for, I think, $50 a month. And... Uh, mm-hmm. It was just, it was great fun. You know, I would go out. A lot of people read the All Weekly, and I would go out to political events, and people would come up to me and want to talk about what I'd written, or they would be really mad about it and write a letter to the editor. And um, I just thought it was fabulous.
0: And how did that go over in high school? Was it a lot of like, oh, there's that blog chick, you know?
2: I, <laughs> no, no, I was homeschooled in high school. I actually dropped out of uh, high school uh-huh. midway through my freshman year. Uh, New Jersey has very, very lax homeschooling laws. I took advantage of that a lot of my friends from acting school had been homeschooled because they would be going to pilot season or whatever. So it was not a it was not a really weird idea for me to do it. And so I other than being involved in politics, I was pretty much a hermit in high school. Mm-hmm. It was not very social.
0: Do you think there's a correlation between people who consider themselves hermits or introverts who then become writers? Because if you're a writer, you get to sit in your own little space often by yourself. You don't have to deal with people the way you do if you're in an office environment, business world. It seems like a natural path for people who just are that way.
2: Yeah, I think you have to be comfortable with yourself and like being alone and being alone with your thoughts and to not be afraid of stillness. And I think often that type of personality has a really hard time in a bureaucracy of any kind or in any type of really structured, um, place. I know I do certainly.
0: And who were your early influences coming up when you were blogging and looking into the future, who did you want to be like?
2: Maureen Dow definitely, which is so funny because now she's, you know, a friend of mine and a mentor of mine, like a great example of it not being true to not meet your hero. She's actually much cooler than you would even think. Maureen, trying to think who else? A lot of the local press in New Jersey at the time, um, I thought was really cool. And there was this writer, Matt Katz, who's now at WMYC, And he was sort of like the premier uh, Chris Christie chronicler. I think his, his uh, thing at the Philadelphia Inquirer was literally called the Christie Chronicles, mm-hmm. and I thought he was fabulous. I read a lot of, I like, subscribed to The Nation, um, and I read a lot of The Nation. I read a lot of, um, I read like Alternet, all the sort of left-wing, I contributed to Alternet actually when I was in high school, and all of the left-wing blogs of that era, I was really obsessed with Salon. I read a lot of Salon.
0: And so my last who is Olivia type question is, what do you do when you're not writing? What are your hobbies, your interests, your non-political passions? Are you like binge-watching Netflix um or skiing down I kinda, the slopes yeah. of
2: Aspen? Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. I do love Aspen, but then, you know, Sonny Bono taught me that I shouldn't ski.
0: It's a lesson a lot of us learn from Sonny.
2: Yeah, sad. But I, I mean, I love to travel. I watch a lot of movies and... Uh, my fiance and I kind of have like a makeshift film school that we're doing right now where we're studying a bunch of different directors. i spent a lot of my time. Um, always Coppola, mm-hmm. um, always Scorsese, Tarantino, and uh, we're getting into some Japanese movies, right? And mm-hmm. just watched Brother, and uh, we're just kind of going through like a list of directors that we're interested in. This
0: is a good segue into White House Plumbers because I, I started watching that. Dave games. Mandel.
2: I study Dave Mandel. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, Watergate is like, and I guess because of what's going on in Washington these days, it's like such a big topic of interest again. By comparison to the Trump years, Watergate just seems like a jaywalking episode. But how did you get involved as host of that, which is uh, currently a series on HBO?
2: I work with Frank Rich at New York Magazine, and Frank is one of the executive producers of the show, and I'm, I'm... Through Frank, I know Dave Mendel, the director, mm-hmm. and so they, you know, they had uh, Vanessa Gregoriadis, another New York Magazine writer, give me a call one day because she works with the uh, podcast production company that's uh, been producing it, and they asked me if I was available, and I said, of course, you know, I'm obsessed with Watergate, mm-hmm. and and you know, anything for Frank and Dave.
0: I heard you tell a story about meeting Carl Bernstein.
2: <laughs> yeah, I. <laughs> I met Carl before, I've been on TV with Carl before, um, but I'd never like seen Carl socially. I see Bob a lot in, in Washington, but I, I was at a Christmas party at Sally Quinn's house and I had just finished reading Carl's recent memoir, which is a memoir of his years before the Washington Post, basically all of his time in high school and college as a reporter and then being a young reporter in Washington, DC. And then it ends when he gets to the Washington Post. It's all these fabulous stories about these great characters and, you know, stuff that doesn't really go on anymore. And, you know, these weird newsroom environments that we have now. And I just loved it. And I saw him and I was kind of fangirling to him and talking to him. And then he started looking over my shoulder and he said, Oh, uh, hold that thought, I have to go find Woodward. And I was just like, wow. All this time later, you know, you could still be at a cocktail party at Sally Quinn's house and Bernstein is looking for woodwork. When
0: I see the two of them on CNN side by side, like literally gives me chills. But I have my own Bernstein story because I'm a huge Watergate geek myself. I live downtown Manhattan and I was walking past a cafe a few years ago and he was sitting outside by himself. And I walked past him. I was like, oh, that's Carl Bernstein. And I stopped after 20 feet and I just said, you are really going to regret if you don't go back and just fanboy on this guy. And uh, so I, I turned around, I went back and I said, you know, it was very polite. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. I was in journalism school a bunch of years ago and you and Bob Woodward were like the gods and still are. And it's just an honor to meet you. And he was like, oh, well, that's fabulous. So what, where did you go to school? And he just starts talking to me. and I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to Carl Bernstein. Like it was such a thrill to me. So. And I'm also jealous that you get to call Woodward Bob. Because that means you guys are pretty tight that's <laughs> my dream is to be able to call no work. we're
2: certainly not i mean you see You're
0: you tighter know, than i am in, for sure in
2: a certain part of washington or you run into people all the time and it's like you know living history it's so strange yeah
0: no it is it's living history but geeks like us get that but other people are like well, <laughs> bernstein who gives a shit? but <clears throat> the interesting thing about watergate is the comparisons to that versus now the comparisons to the Republican Party then versus now, the comparisons of Nixon to Trump and how all of that is just the, contextually and perspective wise, just so different.
2: I mean, in the Trump years, it certainly felt like there was a Watergate every five minutes, right? I mean, you'd be at the White House and there was a stretch, especially in the first year, where every day at around five or 6 p.m., there would be some bombshell story that would drop from usually from the Times or the Post or the Journal, and everyone would sort of be. It was almost like we were sitting around waiting to have our evenings upended and you know have to cancel plans to go and still are. deal with it. Yeah, and but it was like this weird thing where like clockwork for a stretch, someone was being fired or you know something crazy was happening. Uh, so Watergate seems so quaint. Right, in, in comparison to the sort of shit that was happening and is still happening. But they're very similar personalities, right? They're extraordinarily sensitive, paranoid, retribution-obsessed, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's impossible to consume any content about Nixon and about Watergate now and not think of the parallels, not just in their personalities, but the personalities of everyone around them, these true believers, right, these people who have this sort of religious fervor about their ideology. And uh, some of the characters are still around. I mean, people like Roger Stone, right? Mm-hmm. Not that he was you know, a big figure in Watergate, but he was certainly connected to Nixon mm-hmm. and was you know, around during that period. And to think that someone like that is still affecting our politics, uh, it's sort of astounding.
0: It just makes you also think that like, what would have happened if the Republican party then like today has no soul, no moral compass, if there was an internet, if there was social media, like, history would have been completely different. And and those things didn't exist then, but they do now. Maybe that's why we're living in a country that is divided with people who don't seem to care about the rule of law and defending the Constitution and treason and all of those things.
2: You also just have your, like, choose your own adventure in the media every day, right? Everything is so democratized that it's entirely possible without even trying to live in your own information bubble and to just not even be exposed to contrary opinions or to facts that challenge your perception of an event so i think it's much easier now to to live in an alternate reality
0: so i want to talk about your work a little bit there's a couple of articles that you've written that are my favorite i I love the way you write you're so uh, thank you edgy and funny and you have this way of stringing words and references together that is not only unique but just makes it such a fun fluid read. So uh thank you. That's uh,
2: really nice of you.
0: Yeah. And so one of them was an article on Giuliani who's in the news this week. <laughs> what happened to that guy? Actually I wanted to say what the fuck happened to him because it almost <laughs> requires the, the F bomb because it's so astonishing. Yeah. What's going on with him?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I mean when you talk to people who who've known him for a long time they kind of uniformly reference just a period after the presidential election where he was in the primary in 07, where he just started to deteriorate, uh, whether it's because of you know some sort of dependence. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation about his substance use or it's some sort of decline that, that is unrelated to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but he's certainly quite different than he was, but, you know, he was, but it's not as if he's a completely different person. I think some of it's a little bit of wishful thinking or a little bit like, um, not really wanting to fully account for what he was like as a mayor, you know, what his politics have always Mm -hmm. been and, and wanting to feel like all of this is some incredible
0: departure
2: when I think really a lot of it was hiding in plain sight.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, like a lot of Republicans, he was always self-serving and narcissistic and mildly corrupt. and
2: A lot of politicians, right? I mean,
0: I do think it's a little more lopsided on one side than the other. And someone like Rudy did literally try to steal a third term by exploiting 9-11, which he did 9 million times. <laughs> but yes, you're 100% right. It's not like
2: Was it the Biden
0: line, a noun, a verb, and 9-11? Right. Right. It it just seems like there's something that did change where, I mean, like him or not, he did have a great legacy. He was America's mayor, and if he just played his cards right, he would sail off into the sunset as a relatively respectable person. But then he went off the deep end. To quote from your article, when you met him, you said quote, he was drooling onto his sweater with an unzipped fly and three cell phones he hardly could operate. That's like a crazy man. <laughs> like, when did that Giuliani happen? Because I don't think like I in can, the, in the mean, 80s he was him. walking around with an unzipped fly, you know?
2: I didn't know him then. You know, I, I met him in the Trump years. So for me, you know, I, all of my understanding of, of what he was like previously is from you know, archival footage and from right. talking to people who knew him then. but he certainly I mean he is a, he's a strange guy he does he does drink I mean he doesn't make any he doesn't hide that and he's got he's sort of just seems a bit he doesn't make eye contact. he's got this kind of weird he doesn't reliably make eye contact. he's this sort of weird habit of if you're talking to him like this. He'll be like looking over here, <laughs>
3: uh,
2: and, which is how I noticed the 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 drool. But he.
0: And do you, you know, tell he's him he's drooling, seems... or do you just sit there and go, "Oh my god, he's drooling."
2: I didn't know what to do <laughs> in that situation. We were in a uh, his car being driven somewhere when that was happening, and I, I didn't know how to handle that at all. You don't do
0: that <laughs> so... subtle thing that people do, like. Well, it wasn't to give him like a. a hand, but... it touching your own face. No,
2: it wasn't. I mean, if he had something in his teeth or something, I probably would have said something, but this was more dire than that. It seemed, you know, not (laughs) fixable.
0: Like the unzipped fly. Certainly not going to go. I certainly wasn't going to get involved in that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Totally understandable. There's just, I don't know. I think he's... I'm slightly older than you. So I've lived through the 80s Giuliani years. And I never liked him, but he did take down the mob. There were things where you'd be like, all right, I don't like the guy, but like, all right, some things he's doing and whatever. The seeds of
2: the racism, I mean, all of that was a part of his legacy as mayor, mm-hmm. too. So I think that there is some selective, especially people who worked for him Department. or who, who were allies of his at that time. When you talk to them, there's definitely a little bit of rose-colored glasses about, oh, the Rudy now that we know, is nothing like that Rudy. You go back and you hear the way that he would talk about crime, that he would talk about uh, race. There, yes, it's more extreme now, and it's more blatant now. But I think the, the roots of who he is, I mean, all of that was was kind of waiting to flower as it has now.
0: Absolutely. And he he fomented that and also made it worse because that was also at the same time Trump was kind of reigning over New York in his Central Park Five racist years. So speaking of Trump, you, you wrote an amazing piece in December about Trump. Thank you. And the comparisons, not just by you, but by him, to Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard are stunning. And sometimes you read something and you just be like, that's it. Isn't that who he is? He's Norma Desmond.
2: Yeah, he really is. I mean, I, I knew that he loved that movie and I had heard the stories about him screening it and um, you know having people watch it at the White House or on the plane or at Camp David. But I when I went back and I, I probably watched that movie, I think I drove my fiancé absolutely insane. I think I watched it 30 times in the course of a week when I was writing that. But the more that I, I mean, the parallels, when you go to Mar-a-Lago and you see this mansion, you smell this mansion that is, you know, just kind of mildewy and it's a beautiful place. I mean, it really is gorgeous and serene in that kind of creepy way that only Secret Service secured areas are serene, right? Or you kind of, you know that it's probably not being corrupted by any unwanted external forces, although actually that's not true about mar lago but it's sort of got this creepy calm to it because it's such a controlled area. But when you see it and you see him there and just sort of, you know, with these chandelier lights on his face and in this gilded space, it's sad mm-hmm. it's just it's very sad i mean i don't mean like oh like poor poor donald trump i right. feel so bad for him but it's just this kind of pathetic sight and i just kept th- i mean it's even the same style of mansion to Norman Desmond's mansion and i was sort of going through the frames of that film and and you know relay, relaying back to my experience at mar-a-lago and it is there's no you know dead monkey but it's it's pretty staggering, the similarities.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned the smell because you wrote about that in your piece and <clears throat> you, you say on the day he announced <clears throat> his candidacy this past November, the air was heavy with oleander and snipped greenery and sea mist colliding with mold and wood polish and hotel soap and the metallic vapor of Diet Coke and the alcoholic ferment of generations of cougars in Chanel number no. 5. That is brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> because you, you can smell it, you can, a... <laughs> clo- you can close your eyes and go, "Ooh!" Like you literally, you, you. The smell comes off the page of that article. Of that Thank
2: you. It was partly, it was partly a, a, an homage to Marie Brenner, who who wrote brilliantly about Donald Trump for for New York Magazine, one of the earliest profiles of him in a magazine ever, and and she wrote about him again for Vanity Fair after I think about. 10, 15, maybe 20 years amid his divorce with Ivana Trump, and she was sort of lingering on the oleander at Mar-a-Lago and and, um, that specific smell, and it's, you know, that, but aged by 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. But. It, it's a very creepy, creepy place.
0: Well, in the movie, Norma Desmond screams, those idiot producers, these imbeciles, haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again. So help me. You can almost hear those words in his head when he was sitting at the White House Correspondents' Dinner listening yeah. to Obama bash him. Or now, or, joke about or it, now or watching now.
2: DeSantis right. get attention. I mean, there is this incredible scene that Tim o- Tim O'Brien, the biographer, wrote about where he is sitting there, I believe, on a plane with Trump before his political career. And Trump is having him watch Sunset Boulevard. And when Norma Desmond says that, Trump leans over his shoulder and says something, I wrote it in the piece, but says something to the effect of, isn't this fantastic? <laughs>
0: I mean, it's just its such a window in into his sociopathy, you know, yeah. and his malignant narcissism. You also write that a former White House official said, quote, think if he's even our nominee, we may lose our country. Even if I don't believe he can win a general again, I think he could burn down the country. I think it's that dangerous. Mm-hmm. I'm terrified. Knowing that most republicans leading republicans people believe the same thing are you astounded that they're going down the same path after all we know after all they know
2: no i'm not i mean look at 2016 right i mean it's a a very similar situation insofar as like when he was first, you know, we're dealing with everything from the insurrection, you have all of these investigations going on, the midterms are a fucking disaster for him, right? He's not the kingmaker that he wanted to be. And instead of looking at that, and saying, well, we actually, we don't need this guy anymore, right? This is not the pathway forward, instead of learning a lesson, they are just, it's almost like they are willfully imprisoned in this cult of personality, they cannot, they cannot let go of him. There's something psychologically. But
0: why? Um, it's some so self I don't know. Self-destructive.
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out, and I really, I don't have a good answer for it.
0: I do think it's going to be the subject of academic <clears throat> studies for decades and decades to come because...
2: Yeah, there's another White House official quoted in that piece who says something about how they're sort of only now realizing what what that was and how much they were, I'm paraphrasing, but how much they were just trying to convince themselves that it was okay to be there. And you could laugh at that and say, you're only now just realizing that, right? I mean, how is that possible? He's been the same. Nothing has changed about his personality or his motives. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people there really were just not doing any reflection. That's why reporters were sort of like shrinks for a lot of these people at that time. And you would get calls, you know, how does this, what do you think of this? How does this look to you? And genuinely curious because I, there was no perspective in there at all. I think every White House is a bit of a bubble, a bit of a bunker. You're being attacked all the time and you become very defensive and very reluctant to engage with, with people on the outside. But I think in there in particular, there was just this tendency to kind of put on these blinders and not allow anyone to force you to think too hard about what you were doing there, why you were there. Because if you thought too hard about it, you would have to leave immediately.
0: But to your point, they can't leave. You, You know, you watch people like Chris Sununu, who's supposedly one of the sane ones. And he'll say like, hey, I voted for him in 16, I voted for him in 20. And they'll say, well, if he's the nominee, will you vote for him again? And he'll be like, he won't be the nominee. How about just say no? Right. <laughs> I mean, the right. math certainly dictates that he's going to be the nominee, unless something health-wise I comes see, up. He could I be sitting in no prison. and It won't matter. Right?
2: It, it, yeah, so, I see no reason to think that he won't be the nominee
0: at this point. Right. And, and if he is the nominee, there are going to be people like Chris Sununu who vote for him again. Vote for him after the insurrection, after the big lie, after the indictments, after being found liable for sexual abuse. I mean, none of that matters. I mean, that White House official that you
2: quoted before, um, (laughs) that person later on in that piece said something about how they think that people will just fall in line, you know, and that appears to be happening. And I bet you that person will fall in line.
0: But it's like these people, the Chris Nunu's of the world, they, they know that this is going to lead to nothing but another losing election and they're I mean, not it's stupid insane. People. when you
2: go back when you go back and you look at the 2012 rnc autopsy right they they lost Two elections in a row, they decided to kind of look under the hood to see what they should be doing differently to go forward, and they determined that the party needs to be more inclusive. The party cannot demonize uh, minorities. The party needs to realize that demographics are destiny. The party needs to adapt and evolve. And every lesson from that document has been just willfully ignored and and thrown out, right? And and it's not it's to their detriment, and they know that. And yet, I mean, that old adage about Republican or Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Right. It it seems like they have fallen in love and will fall in line with with anyone who can kind of capture them because of the strength of their personality. I mean, they have no clear ideology at this point, there's no there's not even really much of a debate happening on the right right now about, you know, what does it mean to be a Republican right now? What mm-hmm. What is our our worldview right now. How do we feel about foreign policy? And it's all about this guy.
0: It's been seven or eight years since he hit the political scene and I still cannot understand why him, why him? Why have so many semi-reputable, smart people thrown their legacies down the toilet for Donald Trump of all people?
2: I kind of. I think it's just revealed people to be shallow and uh, self-interested as they are you know they there was never any real belief for a lot of these people right now their beliefs are not strong enough to withstand even the slightest the slightest you know nudging from Donald Trump because it's not that strong yeah. you know and and i think it's i think a lot of it is also just celebrity where that is so powerful and they're kind of captured by it
0: but he's such a d-list celebrity you know
2: i mean (laughs) i don't i don't know how we uh judge these things anymore but the apprentice
0: um, i mean that's it yeah that's his celebrity yeah there's another quote from your story which i i love it's when he says uh when you say he was defensive about ivanka and jared quote i don't need anybody's advice i don't need any advice i'm pretty good i think i'm pretty good at doing advice first of all i don't even know what that means <laughs> like what do, how do you do advice and does that mean he's like sitting in a room going hey don you look do you in think? the mirror yeah. and you're like self <laughs> yeah. self hey don what what should <laughs> i what should i you think, think do? you should do yeah i mean it's just yeah i it's don't such know a i love when you sick, said that twisted thing <laughs> to say but that's how he lives I just his think, life i think right?
2: i think he's i mean he's so sensitive about, well, about everything, but especially about the perception um, that anyone else is doing his thinking for him. I mean, the most dangerous thing in that White House for someone who was on the inside or advising him was to be publicly called his, his brain or something like that. I mean, that would drive him mad. And I think it was a lot of the roots of the conflicts with people like Roger Stone or with Steve Bannon, or it was because of the credit that they were getting publicly for being a chief strategist, for being the mastermind. And that was the easiest way. I mean, oftentimes those types of stories seem to be kind of put out there as a means of killing off somebody. Mm-hmm. because it would enrage him so much.
0: Let's have a, a little fun for a second if you're up for a, a little Trump lightning round. Sure. Preferably limited your to...
2: De- our definitions of fun <laughs> may be different.
0: Oh, this is my idea of fun. The preferable answers being limited to yes or no. I'll, I'll let you have a maybe perhaps if you need it. But first question, is he a racist?
2: Yes.
0: Is he anti-Semitic? Yeah, I think so. Is he a pathological liar?
2: Oh yeah,
0: is he capable of love?
2: That's an interesting question.
0: The fact that you have to think so long, um, you're, you're leaning <laughs> well, into no. Thing,
2: you know, <laughs> I am leaning into yes, but not not what I would probably any normal nothing you know normal relative here, but not what any relatively normal person would. Recognize as love. I don't think <laughs> he's capable of you know unconditional love, but I I think I cer like I think he loves Ivanka. I think he loves Melania. Is that a love that I would recognize as being um, very love like? <laughs> Probably not, but in his way, I mm. think he. There's a version of it,
0: yeah. You're reminding me of when I was about 16, I had a friend who had a girlfriend and nobody understood why he was with her. And I once asked him, I said, do you love this girl? And he goes, what is love?
2: I <laughs> see Prince Charles was your friend, Prince Charles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so interestingly, you didn't mention Don Jr. or Eric in that answer. He loves Ivanka, but... Mm-hmm. Does he not love Eric and Don Jr.? I'm not even gonna get to Tiffany, that's all. Okay. I don't
2: know, I don't know. Oh God, I know, it's so sad, sad.
0: All right, is he a sociopath? Yeah. Mm-hmm, is he a traitor?
2: Yeah, oh yeah, big, big time.
0: Is Trumpism <laughs> a cult?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not a cult in the way that you know Scientology is a cult right i know it's not it's not organized and it's not um but i, I think it's a very cult-like worldview. yeah
0: was there russian collusion
2: oh man that co- i i don't not in the way that i think the the resistance wanted there to be no i don't think so
0: do you think the big lie will ever be revealed and accepted with, what I'm sorry among what? like the the MAGAs. Will there be a day where they go, Oh my god, we oh. were so duped.
2: like <laughs> what? Like will there be a lonesome roads moment? Yeah. Um hmm. I don't he, hmm. very slowly. I I don't know if um I mean the interesting thing about Sorry, these were supposed to be yes or no questions, That's weren't they? <laughs> you, you've done pretty well over so we'll we'll the off. interesting. The interesting thing about um about what he's been selling all this time is that his being full of shit is very much part of the messaging, right? I mean, when you go back to that announcement speech of June 16th, 2015, comes down the escalator, and the speech is basically, you know every cop needs a criminal, right? It's, I know how things are corrupt because I have been a part of it. And therefore I can be on your side as your advocate in this corrupt system. I'm making it sound much more articulate than it was, but that was the gist of much of it. And so anytime, that's why it was impossible to sort of have conversations with voters where you would say, but he's full of shit. And they would say, yeah, we know. That's what we like about him is that he's telling us that the system is full of shit. And he knows how it's full of shit. And he's going to help us mm-hmm. by by kind of rigging it on our behalf. So it was a very clever bit of marketing. Mm-hmm. And I I think it really worked. I mean, he did, it's, you know, oh, he didn't pay taxes. Well, we love that. We don't want to mm-hmm. have to pay taxes. That sucks that we have to pay taxes. And he figured out a way around it. And he's a genius. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the response
0: despite the fact that um, i'm paying you know 30 40 percent of my income i worship right. this man who's supposedly a billionaire who doesn't pay taxes like it's right, because he's weird. i mean
2: he's sort of everyone's id right, right. he is That's right. like a walking id mm-hmm. oh he gets to be greedy he gets to be arrogant he's gets to be Racist. um everything right everything that normal standards of decorum and behavior. He doesn't have to abide by that and that is something that his followers broadly admire.
0: The last one, and we've agreed that he's going to likely be the nominee or going to be the nominee, but what are the odds of him becoming president again?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really bad at this stuff. Um...
0: Is this something that worries you? Because then that, if it does, that means you think it's real. So that's kind of like a backdoor way of answering the question.
2: Oh, I mean, I certainly think it's within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And every time I hear a, a Democrat say something about how, oh, we'll, he'll, we'll be able to beat him, you know, he'll be so easy to beat, I just <laughs> want to you know, shake them mm-hmm. because that is unbelievably stupid. Um <laughs> Everyone who thought that last time, how did that work out? Um, I, I think the assumption that everything will go, I mean, 2020, I was listening, my uh, fiance did an interview with uh, AOC mm-hmm. that was um, published on the morning that you and I are talking, and um, she made the point that it was not a blowout in 2020, right? I mean, it was, it was not a landslide, mm-hmm. and I think that should terrify Democrats. It should terrify anyone who doesn't want him to be president.
0: Yeah, no, I I think
2: there's certainly a chance.
0: If it's astounding to anyone that he's as far as he is right now in this process, given everything he's done in the past, then it shouldn't be something that anyone thinks can't happen again. The last thing I want to ask you is your thoughts on 24 and, you know, everything with DeSantis is starting to heat up. He's supposed to be announcing next week. And, you know, he's a little mini me uh, of Trump. I don't know. He's just. terribly excited about the trump. higher heels, yeah, the higher heels. <laughs> yeah i mean he's just I, I see him as just a giant blob of nothing outside of florida I, is he really
2: i kind of see it like a rubio or I, I think it's very easy to to kind of seem like a big bad wolf before you're formally running and there's a lot of hype but it se- seems like trump is going to, des-
0: to decimate him destroy him I
2: I have no idea what they're planning and then maybe we'll all be surprised mm -hmm. and and they have, you know, some sort of killer strategy in the works, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. Yeah. I think in theory, it's very easy to be a compelling candidate, but uh, whether or not that works in practice, I, yeah.
0: So speaking of what's in the works, what's coming up for you next? You got the podcast. DeSantis. (laughs) (laughs) Are you writing a piece on
2: DeSantis? I I am. Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah. So.
0: When will that be? You know, call me,
2: DeSantis, if you're listening to this. I I don't know. I don't know. Probably sometime in the next month or two. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure the word woke is going to be in that piece a bunch of times, mainly from him. <laughs> Everything to him is woke.
2: Um, Yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. good luck to you and, on that. Uh, other than that, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, thank, yeah, thank you. Thank you, you so much. Yeah, you've been very generous with your time. I, I do hope you'll come back. And uh, Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.
2: Bye.
0: That's episode 75. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at andyofstor. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jan Hamoud. Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guests, Peter Strzok and Olivia Nutzi. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.